Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today on the podcast, we're talking to a wonderful physics writer, Jennifer Wallette. Her new book is called Me, Myself, and Why? Searching for the Science of Self. Now, you may be saying, this sounds like a biology book, and you would be right. There's a lot of biology in this book. But there is also physics to be found when investigating the science of self. There's emergent properties and small world networks and a physicist unicorn with bunny ears. Willette explains it all today on the Physics Central podcast. Sure. Uh, I'm Jennifer Willette. I'm a science writer. I've um, been doing this for over 20 years now, uh, specializing in physics and to a lesser extent mathematics, which is ironic because my uh, degree is actually in English literature. But I fell in love with physics in my 20s, working for the American Physical Society, so very excited to be on this podcast. I'm just going to jump in here with a side note. The American Physical Society is the parent organization of Physics Central, and we are equally excited to have Willette on the podcast. I have a blog at Scientific American called Cocktail Party Physics, and I'm the author of four popular science books. Uh, the most recent one is Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. So as you can see, Wallette boasts quite the physics writer resume, but this new book is definitely a departure from that. It basically looks at the different kinds of science that go into what makes us who we are. So I, for instance, took a genetics test. I had my brain scanned. I took a personality test. Um, just, just to kind of try out the different ways we try to measure different aspects of the self and then figure out what science has to say about how we build and construct identity. I like to joke that, you know, my last book was about calculus and that hasn't changed for the last 300 years. When you're dealing with cutting-edge neuroscience and psychology and cognitive science and genetics, it changes every day. <laughs> I was literally like updating the, the book until it went to press. <laughs> so, but it's also kind of fun to do something that cutting-edge that's constantly changing. Readers will find some physics in me, myself, and why, and not just in the science. Wallette says she first got interested in the science of self while she was working on her last book, The Calculus Diaries, How Math Can Help You Lose Weight, Win in Vegas, and Survive a Zombie Apocalypse. Wallette wrote that book based on a long-held personal belief that she was simply not good at math. Scientists and science communicators are all too familiar with that refrain. Many people who are challenged by math and science often make it part of their personal identity, as if they simply don't possess the math gene or the physics gene. Then I decided to get over it and write this book about calculus and teach myself calculus belatedly. And I discovered when I went back and looked at my high school transcripts that, in fact, I had gotten A's in my math and science classes. So where did I get this idea that I was bad at math? I don't know, but it, be, it became somehow part of my identity and it had a very adverse impact on the choices that I made. Um, because when you think you can't do math, it steers you away from, say, going into physics. <laughs> so that kind of got me thinking about how we build and construct identity. And I, since I, I'm a science writer, I thought I will explore the science behind this. Okay, so maybe this whole idea started with calculus, but an investigation into the science of self, that would lead straight into the depths of biology, right? Well, it does. There's plenty of biology in this book, but there's also physics, most notably in the section of the book about consciousness. 
And I, I should distinguish when we're talking about consciousness, definitions are very important and they can get a little fuzzy. <laughs> Um, I'm talking about basic wakefulness consciousness, like what happens when you wake up or when you come out of anesthesia, when you suddenly are just aware of your surroundings, that kind of basic fundamental consciousness. Ironically, that's the, probably the chapter that has the most physics in it, <laughs> um, in the entire book, because some of the most interesting ideas in consciousness research come, you know, are drawing on physics. You know, we're moving away from this notion of the brain as a series of interconnected regions, and we now more look at it as the brain as a network of networks. And the minute you get into networks, information theory, and complexity, and emergence, you're, you're in physics. <laughs> we talked a bit about network theory and complex networks on last week's podcast about the game of Go. Network theory is basically the mapping and tracking of connections. The brain contains billions of neurons that send information to each other locally and across large distances. So which neurons are connected to which? How much information is shared between neurons that are close together? And how much information is passed on to other local groups? Is there a central hub where all the information is sent? These would all be things put into a neural network map. And the reason that we lose consciousness, you know, when we disrupt uh, those networks is because the brain appears to be organized along a small world network. And this, of course, is the airline hub system, if you think about it. Uh, you have a few major hubs where things get integrated in a lot of local hubs, and they all kind of send everything to the major hubs. So you have all your sensory data getting, getting taken in, say, in, in the visual cortex and being processed, and then it gets sent to the main headquarters, and that gets integrated. And if that information is not integrated, then there can be no consciousness. The brain is not going to be, you're not going to be aware. You can be seeing things, literally, if you're in a coma or under anesthesia. But your brain will not process that as an experience because it's not, it's not getting sent to the central processing area. Another physics concept that comes up in neuroscience is the idea of emergent properties. Basically that if you get a bunch of things together, they can have different properties than the individual things alone. So a system can be more than the sum of its parts. Traffic is an example of an emergent property. A whole bunch of cars together on the road can sometimes flow smoothly like a fluid, sometimes they jam like a solid. And those properties are not shared by the individual cars. You need many cars to get traffic. Consciousness or wakefulness may also be an emergent property. And I'm fond of pointing out to people when, when I give talks about this that it, it's, it's, a, it's a thing now to talk about consciousness and the self as an illusion. Because I think people misunderstand what emergence means. Yeah, a traffic jam is an emergent phenomenon. But a traffic jam is a very real thing. So consciousness is real if it's emergent. But the fact that you can take that fundamental idea and, and apply it to something like the brain is, is, is amazing to me. So neuroscientists are using physics ideas to understand basic consciousness or wakefulness 
Getting to the idea of deeper consciousness, our thoughts, our personalities, that's obviously a much more complicated business. But these physics concepts like emergent properties, network theory, complexity, those things suggest that it's not impossible for something as amazing and deep as human consciousness to emerge from a physical system. But that can still be a hard concept to wrap your mind around. People want to believe in some kind of magic, right? And, and th there's always been, I think, a little bit of resistance to the idea that complexity can, can arise out of simple interactions. But I think that there's no doubt that this is the case, that, that, that you know, complexity can come out of these, these you know, it's just a lot, of, a lot of really, really simple interactions. You have, you have like billions of neurons in a brain, and they're all like talking to each other. And somehow out of all that chaotic mess, you know, all, out of all that disorder, you actually get some kind of order. You get this, this sense of consciousness that comes out of that. And it does seem a little bit like a magic trick, but it's not. You know, <laughs> you know mind is tied up with matter. Um, that very much appeals to me uh, as an empiricist, as, as someone who has spent all this time around physicists, because it's not, you know, abstract and out there and disembodied. There's no ghost in the machine. You know, mind and matter are kind of intertwined together. Wallet's book is an extensive examination of the idea of self. She looks at the biological self, the psychological self. And in this modern age, we also have our virtual selves. Online identity is a very big thing these days. Um, most physicists maybe are not huge fans of Twitter or blogging, but more and more of them are starting to put themselves out there in the virtual sphere. I would say nowhere is the virtual self more extensive than in the world of Second Life. Second Life is a virtual reality that reflects the real world. So people can get jobs, go on dates, build houses, they build a second life. Some people actually built a second life version of one of the particle physics detectors used at the Large Hadron Collider. Second Life even has podcasts. Willett hosts a podcast in Second Life called Virtually Speaking Science. And for scientists to be on the podcast, they must enter Second Life, so they have to create an avatar, a virtual self. And it's always fun to watch how they how they choose to build their avatar, because when I get these scientists as my guests on the show, um, they get to choose, and they work with our producer to, to create an avatar that they feel reflects who they are. And you get several literal, you know, minded people who just wanted to look like the way that they look. If they could have it, like, with gray hair, great. You know, they, everything. that They wanted to basically represent them as closely as possible. And then you get kind of more abstract people who want to kind of play around with it. Uh, Jana Levin, the astrophysicist, want, decided to be a unicorn with bunny ears. And we had to point out to her that she might want to you know, put a dress on because technically her avatar was naked. <laughs> um, and uh, Simon Dedeo, who's a complexity uh, scientist, decided he wanted to be a swarm of butterflies because he deals with swarm dynamics and collective behaviors. Um, emergence, so to speak. Uh, and that to me was just absolutely fascinating that, that people would have all these different ways of expressing who they thought they were through their avatars. And there's something kind of empowering about that. And 
for physicists who are interested, I think, in reaching out to people, how you choose to present yourself can be very telling. And there are effective ways and charming ways to do it and less effective ways. And, you know, that might be one, one way that, you know, you could really play around with it. Thank you to Jennifer Willett for being on the podcast today. Once again, her new book is called Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. Head to our blog, physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com. We've linked to Willett's website and her Twitter account. She's got a great Twitter account. You've been listening to the Physics Central podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more of the Physics Central podcast. Thank you.